Hello and welcome to this episode of Doing Good Through Food. Today I'm sitting down with Paul Newnham, Director of the Sustainable Development Goal 2 Advocacy Hub. The Sustainable Development Goals, generally referred to as the SDGs or Global Goals, were set out by the United Nations General Assembly in 2015 as a universal call to action to end poverty, protect the planet and ensure that all people enjoy peace and prosperity. There are 17 interconnected goals that cover social and economic development issues, including poverty, health, education, and global warming. SDG 2 is zero hunger. More specifically, the goal is to end hunger, achieve food security and improve nutrition, and promote sustainable agriculture by 2030. The Advocacy Hub coordinates global campaigning and advocacy to achieve SDG 2. It brings together NGOs, advocacy groups, civil society, the private sector and UN agencies to share expertise, ideas and to collaborate on campaigns so that overall impact is increased. Paul's been working in the sector for many years with World Vision and more recently with the World Food Programme. And at the Hub, Paul is working to support and create change that will impact not only the distribution of food but the way that we interact with food for years to come. He said he believes zero hunger can be achieved by 2030, but only if enough people join the conversation, think about the problems and become part of the solution. And I can't wait to pick his brain about all of that. So, Paul, it's a pleasure to welcome you to the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. Um, so in, in researching this, I found one of the things that I found is that you've traveled extensively. I think that's that's sort of putting it quite mildly. You visited over a third of the world world's countries, which is an, an incredible thing to be able to say. Uh, and you've lived for extended periods throughout the developing world, Latin America, Africa, Europe, and Asia. So I imagine you've got quite an international view on yep. uh, on all these issues. And I was I, was, I suppose I was wondering what what led you to settle in the UK at the moment. And now that now that you have, what do you make of the general attitude towards food and sustainability? Yeah, yeah um, it's interesting. So after traveling the world, um, it's been quite surprising the places that you land. Uh, I would never have plotted out the different locations that we ended up living in, uh, but we have enjoyed each of them for a varied reason. So how we got here, uh, I was working in Rome. We'd uh, before that been living in the US and we packed up everything and decided to finish up the job that I was in and we were going to travel for a year and got offered this job in Rome. So I ended up in Rome. Uh, I have four kids um, and so we lived in a two-bedroom apartment, the six of us, um, in inner city Rome. And then I got offered this job and the question was, where would you live? And it was an uh, option of either Rome or London. And uh, given we don't speak Italian and had just spent four months in an inner city apartment for two with two bedrooms with six people... Our kids were saying we need to go somewhere where we can go to school and speak the same language. And so um, the UK was was the option. And so we moved over here. Um, and it was also somewhere that was attractive because of the different things going on in the food scene. There's a lot of food advocacy conversations that have really started out of the UK. Um, obviously, there's, you know, the famous pinups, you know, people like Jamie and others that have kind of, you know, championed that on a global stage. But then there's just a lot of other um, grassroots advocacy that's really come out of the UK um, and and particularly around the, the areas of food. And so in terms of coming here, it was attractive in that regard. 
Um, it wasn't so much about the cuisine, um, but in terms of the sustainability in looking at the, the way food is thought about, um, the UK is moving, you know, as quickly as everyone. Mm. I've seen, um, I think there was a, a progress report, uh, one of the high-level political progress reports, yeah. and they were saying that, you know, the UK is doing doing well in these regards and hopefully we'll sort of get into that a bit but I mean is that that's how you found it um it, it's doing well in terms of the advocacy it's not necessarily doing well in terms of the results mm. so you know childhood obesity is still really high in the UK um, I think it surpassed the US on a number of age groups just recently which wow. when you think about that it, it's quite alarming um, and so I, I, that's, I, I've not heard that before, and that's, yeah. that's quite shocking to me. Yeah I, I, yeah, I think that was about maybe eight months ago, and there was like they broke down the age groups, and they said that there was three of the age groups the UK now had more children that were obese in the um, age group than in uh, the US. That's not something we want to be world leaders in. No. no. And so in terms of – and so on the advocacy front, it's really exciting what the UK's done. But then the reality is there's still lots of divides in the food system. And I think, you know, uh, what's happening at – and this is the same in lots of parts of the world. You know, the, the, the bleeding edge can be seen as being very forward, but then that doesn't necessarily translate through. And so you still have big issues with takeaway foods and – um, low nutrition, high sugar issues that are going on. What I think is good is that when some of these issues are addressed, there are groups trying to look at it. So, you know, the, the, the current mayor of London's got an obesity task force, which is looking at trying to come up with solutions and ideas around this. And so to me, that's progressive. Um, the reality is, can that actually drive change? And that requires some shifts. And I, I think there's, you know, I'm no no fan or no expert of Brexit in any way, but um, I think that's quite distracting in terms of actually then being able to really deal with the big issues that are going on because there's a lot of energy from government and being put into Brexit and also at company level that maybe could be used on other things. I, I tend to agree. I mean, not an expert either, but it certainly seems that's, dominated the conversation on all sorts of things and there's a level of uncertainty around all of that as well you know exactly. certainly in the industry um i we I've, i think i set it out fairly well in a summary but just the sort of sustainability yeah sustainable development goals themselves i i'm not sure that that's something that all of the audience listening would have heard yeah. obviously i just thought maybe we'd sort of touch on i wanted sure. i wanted to really sort of talk about the hub yeah. mainly but the the goals themselves yeah. um are obviously sort of very they're very laudable very lofty i think yeah. is probably the word you know they, they're huge aspirational goals and um broken down i think most people would agree that those are great goals to have and then the sort of question would be well how you know how do we do those things it sort of it would seem almost too big so those are broken down into targets is yeah. that correct i don't know if you could sort of yeah so i mean essentially the way i think about the, the global goals are they're a plan so essentially the world leaders got together on our behalf and they worked out what are the big issues that we need to address and they said these are the 17 biggest issues that we think we should be addressing and so they decided to put targets under each of them and they put targets which um, are intended to be measurable and reportable. Some of them it's a little challenging, to be honest, but... 
the intent is to be able to say these 17 goals are connected to each other, but they also, and they're universal, so they're not just for developing countries, they're for all countries, um, to measure progress around how do we drive forward these big issues. And so I think from looking at them as a set of goals, they're, they're really encouraging because they set a target, they set a base for every country of the world to work towards. And so now there's a lot of the measurement, you know, reports and things are, are aligning to these goals. A lot of the private sectors talking about these goals, government starting to talk about it. And so it just gives a common agenda and a common narrative for everyone to work towards. And so essentially it's, it's a game plan for trying to move these things forward. And so, you know, in, in any, there'll be some parts of the world. I think I saw somebody tweet today that Denmark is 84% of the way of achieving the SDGs, you know, and that's, that's great, but it's also if Denmark is 84%, imagine where many other countries are that don't necessarily have the same um, resources as Denmark are. So, you know, we have countries in all very different spaces on different goals, but the intent is this is one way of looking at everyone in one lens. Mm. And having a conversation that, that it's about a conversation. Yeah. If you don't have if you don't have a framework for conversation or a narrative to talk together as countries, as people, um, it's really challenging because you can be talking across each other. Yeah, no, well, it, ma- it makes a lot of sense. Um, just um, sort of touch on briefly the, the targets within sustainable SDG two. Um, the eight targets are. Prioritizing the most vulnerable, and yeah. ending malnutrition, productivity, sustainability, diversity, yeah. innovation, trade systems, and markets, and they obviously those are fleshed out, you know, into specific targets. Are there particular things within those that attracted you yeah. to to get involved? Yeah, I mean, the way I kind of look at the goal, I mean, goal one is really around hunger, and it's really around the f- people not getting enough food, and so it's really about the furthest behind. And so it's looking at who is furthest off um, hitting this. And so obviously that, you know, kind of breaks your heart when you have been and seen that. I mean, I was just looking at the New York Times again this morning, the front page story about Yemen and the the challenge that's been going on in Yemen. And you look into the eyes of these kids and it's pretty traumatic to think that we're in 2018 um, and to think that I'm living here in London and I'm thinking about what am I going to go and eat for dinner and I'm trying to choose between five different types of restaurants and I'm getting a headache because of that at the same time when there's a father in Yemen who can't feed his kid. And so that to me is something that's quite motivating. Um, and it's also quite challenging because I, I find that that target is one that when most people hear it, they actually disengage because it's just too overwhelming. And so then the other parts of SDG2, you look at SDG 2.2, which is around nutrition, and it's about everyone having the right nutrition because it's not just about getting food. It's Mm. also about getting the right food, and that right food can help at both sides. You know, it's leading to big obesity problems in one generation as well as because we're getting fed the wrong things. Um, and then it's around sustainable farming practices and what does that look like and how do we ensure that farmers are actually doing the right things. And as you start to think about the world system, you kind of start going, okay, what are we growing? And, and you know, we surpassed our agricultural production surpassed the amount of food we need to feed everyone in the world um, that, was, some years your, ago. Um, I watched your – you gave a TED yeah. talk and I watched that and that was – 
that was kind of mind-blowing to me. Again, I'd not, I'd not heard it put quite like that, that we already could... We feed we, we, we feed, we produce enough food for 10 billion people, yeah. one and a half times the people on the planet. So it, it's a question of getting that to people and, and the things and systems and things that are preventing that rather than it's not the uh, sort of it's not that we're overwhelming the capacity of the planet to produce food. No, we are. We, we grow enough food. The challenge is the food's not in the right places. And sometimes it's the challenge we're growing the wrong foods um, and so, or we're processing them in the wrong ways. And so there's, but we do grow enough food to feed everyone. And so the fact that there's still 800 million people that go to bed hungry every night, it just is just wrong. Um, and then you've got on top of that, a whole increasingly growing number of people that have, uh, that have got obesity issues and that are having um poor nutrition as a, a in that side and then you've got you know so you've got this kind of challenge which i find which is it's not really just about growing it more food which is what it used to be back you know post the war you know the green revolution was all about how do we produce more food so that we don't have people hungry and we can feed everyone well we've gone past that now the question is how do we do that in a way that's sustainable for the planet so looking at climate issues and all of the rest. Um, and, it's, and it's looking at nutrition. How do we make sure we get the right nutrition so we're eating the right things? Um, and then, you know, also in SDG 2 is, in SDG 2.5 is really around biodiversity and protecting, you know, um, crops. And, you know, we're losing huge amounts of crops at the moment. Um, I was talking to somebody from Crop Trust and they were telling me that I think it's gone down. I, I can't remember the exact number, but it's like, of all the available foods, we now eat out of a basket of about 30 things, you know, and the number one, five top crops are the, you know, feeding the majority of calories in the world, like 80% of calories. And within them, we're using one or two varieties. You know, we're not even using the diversity of the varieties of rice or wheat or anything like that. We're using just one or two. And so then when pests come, when climate yeah. changes, we've got no sort of... That's quite a fragile it's system, very fragile isn't it? System. That's, yeah. And so the protection of biodiversity to me is really critical, especially when you can go, you can look at a grain and you can substitute one grain for another and you can get, you know, so there's things... I've got some chefs that I work with and they use things like millets, finger millets, which are in India they're using and they're using one-fifth the water of rice to grow. Right. And they're having, you know, three times the iron, you know, in them and num other nutrients are really high. And so you can substitute out different grains, cook a little bit differently, think a little bit differently, and you can get much higher nutrients for less volume. Um, far less inputs. Far and, less yeah. inputs. Um, more climate sensitive and, and, and so there's all these sort of solutions which are out there. And I think part of the challenge is, is that sometimes we have forgotten what they are. We don't like to eat them because we want convenient, quick food. We want it cheap. And so, um, that's meant that, you know, food is not like it's wasted too easily. You know, food in most parts of the world is too cheap particularly and then in other parts it's too expensive mm. well I, I know you um I, I couldn't give you the exact figure but I, I was reading recently how much the uh, percentage of household income spent on food has decreased sort of in our say sort of in two or three generations in the UK it's a fraction it's something like 60 percent down to 15 or 
thereabouts. That might not be quite right, but I mean, it was it was huge. Yeah, yeah, and and sort of like you say the value people put on. Yeah, put on food. The um, World Food Program just recently did a um, a project where they looked at um, the cost of a plate of food. So they took the same plate of beans and said, "What would that cost in New York versus South Sudan?" And um, I think the same plate of beans that was like a couple of dollars in New York to buy, like a hearty bean based sort of soup, in South Sudan would have cost three hundred and sixty dollars equivalent of somebody's salary. And so that just showing, you know, we pay very, very little, but in other parts of the world for the same sorts of nutrients and ingredients, they're paying very, very high percentage of salary. And so that's thinking percentage of salary relevant. Is that to do with sort of commodity, you know, food commodity trading and getting and other countries driving up food prices or is it? <sighs> it's to do with, to me, it's, it's, it's connected to all of those things, but it's mm. also really connected to income. Right. So, you know, in some parts of the world, you have a very high minimum wage or income and in others, it's very low. So we still have a lot of population in the world living under a dollar a day. Um, so if you think about that, then going and buying food, even if it was at the same prices as it is in this part of the world, um, it's still, you know, Still, is still not possible. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So I think it's more recognizing the actual inequalities that are going on around the world. What gets me the most is is often farmers who can't afford the food they're growing, and stuff like that. That kind of really blows my mind. That is pretty hard to fathom. Yeah, I. Um, I mean, I read something recently. It was about avocados. Um, I think it was Mexico that they are buying back. They they can't afford to keep them in the country, but they have they are buying them back off the off the okay. food markets because they're cheaper. I, again, I might not be exactly right, no, on that, no. but I read it and thought that's just there's something there's something broken right. in the something system. Something doesn't that just can't make sense that it's that it can't be kept there. That that's not the obvious option. Yeah. Just before I, I do want I want to sort of move on to the hub in a minute, but I just one of the, the other things that I found out when I or came across when I was reading was. Um, sort of criticism of the goals um, and I just I just thought I'd kind of touch on it and ask you because yeah. I was quite surprised to see it I thought you know these are whether you think they're sort of too huge and yeah. overwhelming but they're, they're sort of who would argue with these but I mean people were saying you know the goals compete with each other and that there are too many I mean again I don't know how common a complaint this is but I was surprised to see it at all um, I was just wondering why, why do you think maybe people are criticising this I mean do you do you think there's some sense that if you say these goals are possible, then there's a sort of imperative to do something about it? You know, if you're saying, well, you could, it is possible, and, you know, this is within the realm of possibility, so it's easier to maybe say, no, you can't, these goals are all misconceived and it's all wrong, rather than actually engage with them. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting one. I mean, there's always going to be people that throw um, stones at different things um, mm. and they want to cr- critique it, and that's that's good in my view. I mean, it's there's no problem with having a good discussion and debate over over it. The challenge is these are the you know the goals that um, each government of the world signed on to, and so they're kind of what we've got. And so I'm a little bit more focused on saying, well, given they're what we've got, 
given they've been kind of signed off and endorsed, let's make the best go of them we can. And so let's not worry. I mean, it's interesting to say, yeah, you know, this goal and this goal, like, you know, a lot of people talk about food waste. Well, food waste isn't in goal two. It's in goal goal 12 under um, responsible consumption and production. And you sit there and they go, the way I want to target hunger is I want to not waste food. Well, yeah, but it's over there. And that to me is like, well... For me, it would be nice to be there, but does it really matter? Because all 17 goals are a set. They're all interrelated. They're all connected. Um, I think to me, it's just something that, you know, we could spend a lot of energy and effort arguing about, or we can just go, you know what? They were what we've got. Let's, let's make it the best of it. So like you said, it's a starting point. It's a starting so like point. Start the conversation, you know, exactly. and go from there. And they're also, I mean, these are government goals. So as you know, with anything in government, that takes a lot of negotiation and particularly when you're involving, you know, the UN level with all com- countries in the world. I mean, there's going to be a little bit of compromise in everything and there's going to also be some complexity because it's not simple what we're trying to solve. I mean, it couldn't, I don't think something that, that sort of complex could be perfect. I mean, you, you're going to sure. find it, it, it's... But yeah, it, it seemed like a very good place to start. It's a roadmap. See. So it's yeah, it's a roadmap, and and we're on the road. And I think what we need to do is just get get on board and and see what we can do. Let's let's move on to the hub because that's what I really love to sort of talk about and you know sort of let people know about obviously as well. Um, maybe you sort of just jump into like how you got involved with it, um, and maybe sort of a bit about what it what it is. So the hub is essentially a network of. Uh, advocates and organizations that are all interested in seeing SDG2 achieved. And so they're working across countries from national to global level, from private sector to government to civil society. And so we have a range of partners involved in that from big UN agencies, from big NGOs that are working in multiple countries to small country-based, city-based groups that are really passionate about the goals and passionate about a part of that. And so the reason I got involved was I had been working for many years uh, for one of the big NGOs working in 100 plus countries. And we, you know, delivered programs. We did a lot of work on the advocacy front. And when I saw this opportunity to really think about how can we kind of disrupt and, and bring together and convene a conversation across the network to try and think a little bit differently about advocacy and about communication in this space. I thought that was absolutely awesome opportunity and absolutely needed because of this complexity. It is hard to not get stuck, um, not get stuck in a particular part that you're focused on and not, and not being able to put your head up and look around and see who else is out there. And so what the hub really does is really help to try and lift people up to hold them and push them forward to share and talk about what each other's doing and bring together people that normally don't get in the same room. And so we focus on bringing together kind of food, agriculture and nutrition communities, which are very different um, and across the development and the humanitarian world as well, because often you these groups will become quite specialized and focused on the areas they're working on. And that's important. Um, the challenge is if they get stuck in those areas and they don't see the connection points and the bridges, then I think you miss opportunities for mutuality and for working together. Mm. So how, how, 
So you were uh, immediately before this, you were at the World Food Programme. Yeah. Um, we are in yeah. at the offices of the World Food Programme. So what, what is, you were working still at the World Food Programme when this started. Yeah. I think, it, if I'm right in thinking, you're, not, you're now exclusively... Yeah. working as the sort of director of the hub. I mean, how, what is the relationship between between the two? And yeah, how? so there was, a, there was a group of three or four organisations that came together in 2015 and they really were looking at the SDGs that had just started and they said, given that SDG 2 is formed in the way it has with food, agriculture and, and nutrition together, are we set up well to succeed? And uh, they said, let's do some research and have a look. And World Food Program was one of them. There was also the Alliance to End Hunger, um, the uh, Eleanor Cook Foundation. Um, and they got together and they said, okay, well, let's do some research. So they did a, a research study with uh, about 50 organizations. They spoke to different people and they asked them a range of questions and pulled together a paper. And that paper basically said there is a role for some sort of um, hub or community that can help support really the coordination, the convening, um, the connecting, uh, and really amplifying and coming up with new a new game plan. And so um, it was from that, at the time I was then working at the World Food Program and I was asked to um, step in to help set this up. And the World Food Program initially incubated the SDG2 hub. And so they said, we'll house the secretariat and support that. Um, as it got started. And so that's part of what, so I started in there. And then as we've moved forward, we've kind of becoming more independent and the World Food Program is still very active, is still one of the key agencies driving this and sits, you know, kind of in the board and a number of different parts. But it's, it's, it's seeing that, you know, this needs to be something that's working across the sector, bringing all the actors together, not coming just from the UN side. I was wondering if there was some sort of value in that, not having having something that's got a bit of distance from the UN, because it's, um, it. I don't. There's a sort of, if you're trying to get sort of grassroots and and sort of yeah. grassroots involvement, sort of bottom up involvement in all these things, rather than it seeming like a sort of directive. I wondered if that's well was seen I, as a barrier. I think the UN, kind. like I think the UN um, can do both, but it is also a. a, a big organization and it's and so it has to deal with nation states and um so it, that has some challenges um and and i think working across they partner very strongly with all the civil society and also the private sector and so if you're going to work in coordinating across all of them there is an uh benefit i think from being independent um, just because then what you can do is support each of them. At the same time, there's different mandates in each of the UN agencies. And so groups like the World Food Program have a particular mandate. FAO has a different mandate. The International Fund for Agricultural Development has another mandate. Each, each three, you know, all three of those agencies are all UN agencies focused on SDG2 in some way. So if you're in one, then sometimes how you relate to the other, you know, so all of these kinds of things come in. And that's, I think part of that is, and this is something that I really enjoy, I suppose, coming out of the um, civil society, it's really community development and thinking about how do you develop communities and how do you build trust and build networks so that you can then get people to work together. Mm. Do you, so it seems like this is sort of something that's growing quite organically, I I suppose. I mean, it is, are there hubs for 
other goals as far as you know or is, is this something that's kind of yeah. just sort of come out of uh, out of your work yeah there is networks in different parts of the goals but there's not a hub that looks at a particular goal so like there is a a, a group on 12.3 for example which is a network that looks at particularly around food waste um, there is a group that looks at one part on trafficking. There is a group that looks, but they're all set up differently. But there's no groups like looking at one SDG. But if you look at the SDGs as well, um, particularly goal two brings together these three kind of areas of ag, nutrition and food, which are big areas, like massive areas. Whereas some of the other goals like education is a much more contained user group if that makes sense um same with water and stuff but i mean there is complexity there but it is the issues are a little bit cleaner mm. i think there was there was a quote that i saw somewhere along the uh way that i from david hertz i don't know yeah. who, who he uh, he's he's a chef from brazil well i thought i just thought it was wonderful you know food has great power to transform lives and is the most inclusive tool to reach the largest number of people in need and i thought Yes, you know, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that's, um, I mean, food's at the center of so much. And I think part of the challenge has been that, you know, food is something that in many ways starts, it, it's at the, it's a central part to community. It's a central issue. You know, like if you look at climate, for example, many of the climate related issues are connected to food. Um, if you look at water, you know, water and food are connected. You look at gender equity, it's very connected to food. You know, there's food is at the heart and is a real connector. And so how we deal with food and food system issues is something that's really, really important. Um, and yet it's also something that's incredibly complex. So in just sort of understanding, because everyone, food is so personal. You know, every person on the planet is a, their own food critic. They have their own tastes, their own likes, their own way of wanting to eat. That then has cultural ramifications. It has family. You know, it's all it, kinds it's of just, things. It's very, very deep with people. It's yeah. kind of, you know, it's, it's some of the earliest memories. It's, it's like you say, family, culture. Religion, everything. I mean, mm. it's tied to who we are. And so there's a lot of identity tied up in food. Um, and yet, you know, things like diets are very aspirational. So people also, they want to aspire to eat different things and eat better or eat more of something. And so that can also have, you know, ramifications. Yeah, it, it is, so you say, sort of very complicated in some ways and very simple in others. You know, there's sort of from the huge food systems down to the fact that you know, a lot of the most important things happen across a table, you know, with food. It's, yeah. Um, the hub, is, so just to go kind of go back to the hub, if, um, how, how do you, how can people engage with SDG2, yeah. I suppose is my question. Um, do, is the hub really a sort of, um, networking and, and those things for people who are engaged and trying to do things about the goal or is it sort of somewhere that someone might start if they're looking to do something yeah. so it's definitely something that we've thought a lot about i mean in terms of who's our audience and i think when we started the key or core audience is to really work with the different players that are engaging people around that but that being said we've also tried to say if an individual wants to come and engage great 
let's find ways for them to be able to focus, to be able to engage and do something. But our intent's not been to build a big audience of activists. It's really been to support the organisations that already have those activists, to get them more coordinated, more aligned, more beating the same drumbeat in a coordinated fashion to drive towards something. And so in terms of how people can get involved, I mean, our website does have tools for you to do, you know, generic social media content to share. There's going to be, you know, things that you can get involved in to go talk to people about. Um, we are at the process. We're very new. So we started last year. And so we're still in the process of like working through and building that structure out. But, you know, going into 2019, we're going to have kind of some policy priorities that we're working on. And so those are things that then individuals can take and say, well, we'll work on that in our context. And this is what that looks like. Um, so there's some campaigns that are in that, you know, there's also some, uh, and, and that's all being sorted at the moment. So, um, but then we've also looked at particular audiences. And so we've said there's certain audiences that we really think should be more in this conversation. And so one of those groups has been chefs where we've really sort of said, you know, chefs are trusted. They're, they kind of sit at the food center of the food system. And so how do we create ways to make them able to engage in new ways? You know, like so creating the narrative for them to engage and to be able to talk about the goals and talk about how their work connects to the goals. So there's a little bit of that and we may do that for other groups as we go forward. Um, we started with chefs because we <laughs> thought there was a big opportunity there. Um, but, you know, there's other groups like farmers and, other different interest groups that I think, you know, people have talked to us about young people. They've talked about the role of grandparents and they've said, you know, often the way the food system was is the way it should be. And so what's the role of grandparents in teaching past traditions, how you eat your food, all this kind of stuff. So there's different might ideas. might be something there too. Yeah. Yeah. But what well, it makes sense that chefs are, a, you know, chefs are a sort of logical place to start because like you say, they, they are right at the... You know, they've got the connection to the farm and the producers uh, in a lot of cases, you know, sort of very directly. But they're kind of they're making choices, at least, that, yeah. that sort of have quite a direct impact there. And then they're producing the food and um, the way that they do that and what they say about it and what's communicated about that has a huge effect on the conversation sort of from there on, like you say. Um, the Chef's Manifesto is the output of that is the is the sort of um is the is the visible face of that i think i wanted i just i'd like sort of to ask you a little bit about that um so that that was that was your engagement with chefs um to date i mean that's that's maybe we could just talk about how that started and sort of where you're at with it um yeah. And how it ties in with that. I mean, so when I, in my previous roles, I'd worked with chefs in different ways, um, mainly because chefs are, I mean, people trust chefs. People are, are pretty obsessed with food in lots of parts of the world. Um, and chefs curate and they talk about food in a way that's very non-threatening, that's quite entertaining and engaging. And so when I started this role, I one of the groups that we were kind of talking about was how do we engage with these chefs? And so I started to look at different groups out there that were working with chefs and found that there's a lot going on with chefs. Um, 
as as we started to look at how we could coordinate that and work together, the challenge was there was no narrative globally for how chefs are contributing to sustainability. There was very regional groups, groups and and frameworks, but there was no global narrative. And so what we did was we basically looked at how do we bring together chefs from different parts of the world to create and look at the the sustainable development goals and work out what matters to them and what fits. And so we basically used that to pull out um, the areas in the SDGs that made sense to chefs. And we then came up with these eight areas that make sense to chefs um, that they felt they could contribute to. And that's, um, I mean, the process was you, you surveyed, um, yeah. you, you sort of went out to, um, you had calls and workshops and yeah. things to that effect, and then you've settled on these, uh, and these are sort of chefs from all around the world, and then you've, with their yeah. input, you've settled on eight themes, eight areas that sort of tie in with this. So it's, uh, that's, that's where you are i think if that's right that that is that process so finished so that was or? started so we started with with 130 plus chefs in 38 countries and we did it intentionally online and then offline so that we could then encourage participation because we didn't have a lot of money to do travel around the world and go everywhere and meet and run workshops in every part of every continent so we kind of relied on partners we found people they hosted things we borrowed stuff we we did some good surveying and had some calls. And so what we did was we developed that action plan out. Now we're since then we've actually, so we've got the eight areas and then under each of the eight areas, we've developed actions that chefs can do. And so these are things that you can ask others to do. These are things you can do in your own kitchen. And then we've curated some examples of people doing that. And the intent is that this is not meant to be a big stick that says you're in, you're out. It's actually to say, here's an aspirational set of goals for chefs and actions that they can then, if they're interested in this space, think about how they can integrate. And here's some examples of chefs doing that. And this is what they're doing. And let's look at that. Let's learn from them, but let's not say that's the answer. Let's say that's an answer. And what can we do? Because my belief is that the only way you are going to achieve these goals is if everyone everywhere looks at their own space and applies them in a way to say, what can we do? It's not saying we need to do what they do. It's saying, what can we do? What can I do? And, 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 and that's contextual. So it's not, you know, the same answer for everywhere in the world. So what we've done is we've got these chefs. So that's growing now. We now have um, uh, 250 plus chefs in 50 countries. We've started to develop what we call action hubs, which are local hubs of chefs, which are meeting. They're working together. They're engaging. They're talking about issues. They're creating content. They're thinking about projects to work in their local um, space. And so we're slowly building that out. And so since we launched this action plan in uh, June, um, that's been growing really quite quickly. Mm. And I take it that's something people can get involved in that Absolutely. you want them to get involved with. I mean, Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, it's essentially a narrative and a framework where you, as if you're involved in cooking and um, you can take it and, you know, start to think about how you can contribute and you can get together with other people, have a conversation using this as a narrative. And so basically sharing what you're doing and we've got people in all different parts of the world doing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's, um, I think the way that, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, I'll, I'll put some links to all of these these sort of bits in, yeah. but it's kind of, it's, 
it is communicating in a way that makes a lot of sense. And I, I, I think from what I've seen, that's something that's quite Im- quite an interest of yours and sort of, I mean, obviously it's important in what you're doing here, but I mean, it seems like that's something that's been important to you the whole way through. I mean, as sort of looking back into your, your sort of pre, pre-food history, you were, you know, sort of theology and yeah. um, an and artist as well. And you yeah. know, sort of these are all means of communicating, I, yeah. I suppose. Is that, is that right? Is yeah, that sort of, no, I mean, I'm a big believer in, you know, often people talk to the same people about the same things. Mm. So there's a real danger in this sort of in this sort of area as well of preaching to the to the choir. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And and mm. so people spend a lot of energy talking to the same people and getting people really educated in their own space. Um, and what I believe is that we're not going to change if we don't bring everyone along. And so everyone's at different points. So we need to find everyday ways to bring people along. So um, I've always looked at how do you communicate in different ways and how do we make our communication more engaging, more um, accessible. And so that's, you know, one of the big challenges in the development space, but it's also what development's about. I mean, community building and community development is all about um, listening and communicating and reflecting back on what people are saying and, and, and really helping them to s- develop solutions. And frameworks help people to organize their thinking. And so if it's a framework with eight points, if it's a framework with 17 points, um, all very helpful because what it does is people can then go, okay, well, what do you think about this? And all of a sudden they can go, okay, and some people will just take it, other people will debate it, other pe- but what they're doing is they're actually thinking about it and they're actually starting to kind of engage in the content and then when you get them engaging in the content, then that's the first step towards driving towards action. You know, some people will just do it and then as they do it, they'll realize why they do it. Other people will need to think about it before they do it. Everyone, Everyone's different. And the reality is sometimes we often think of everyone as being very similar um, and we try and treat everyone the same in this kind of big way. But the reality is we have to communicate in ways that acknowledge the differences and the uniqueness. And particularly when you're working globally um, and you're working across borders, it's very different because depending on how you've grown up, what you've seen, you know, how you were fed food, what your teacher liked, what your parents liked, how the food was presented, will depend on whether you like to eat certain things. You know, like if you give a kid broccoli cooked properly, they'll love it. But the majority of people in this world do not know how to cook broccoli. They boil it to death and it becomes a soggy mess and it tastes awful. Um, But if you cook it the right way and you present it and you garnish, you can get kids to do anything. And so there's a little bit of imagination needed sometimes in the way we communicate. Do you think it sort of comes down to um, simplifying sometimes? You know, if, if you're trying to communicate something that is uh, complex, you know, sort of is extremely complex at its heart, or you, you, you're sort of uh, talking around things that difficult issues, I suppose there's a, there's a danger if you're develop if you're working within a particular community a particular field area of expertise or whatever a lot of kind of jargon can creep in a lot of uh, yeah. sort of industry speak in any industry so i mean do you when you're looking at kind of working across communities across different fields of expertise is that something you try to really sort of strip out and is, is that a way to 
to maybe think about communicating. Yeah, look, I think I think part of it is is most people get confused about who their audience is, and so I think you start with the audience, and then you start with why you're communicating, and and then you work out what you're saying and how you do it. But um, people often start the opposite way, and so I'm a big believer in you know you need to really think with think first on the audience. Who are we actually trying to communicate with? And you'll hit other people around that audience. But if you're trying to communicate with chefs, we need to use language chefs need will understand, and that's not sustainable development goal jargon. So we had to sit down and say, well, what what works for the kitchen? What's kind of a way of chefs would talk? What's the language they use? So in doing the surveying, what we were doing was looking for key words that were consistent. We were looking for ways they would describe stuff so that then it actually we can start to then create something in their own language. And then as you do that, then they all of a sudden feel more comfortable with it. So then they start advocating on it themselves. I suppose it feels not less like something being imposed. That's something it's a conversation it's again created yeah. yeah it's co-creation i mean and we all like that no one likes to be told what to say or do but if you can be a part of the conversation to develop something it's always good <clears throat> um so like you said you're a young organization where where from here what's uh it started off at a pace. Yeah. What are the plans? So, I mean, we're, we're in the process of just really developing that out. So we're building out um, the secretariat team. We're building out some of the structure around the, the the mechanics that you need to run a network and an organization. So we're kind of developing out our web platform. We're developing our, our newsletter. We're, you know, some of these real structural pieces. Um, we're hiring a couple of people that we need to kind of just give us a little bit of more capacity um, so we're going to be looking a little bit more than going forward into a much more planned out focus on a few areas. And so we've just gone through a process with uh, a number of different partners across the world that have looked at the policy roadmap, essentially, and what are the different things happening in the coming year and where could we be putting energy to uniquely forward an agenda and so that's something that we've put some energy and effort into and that's going to drive out a set of priorities and then we'll get behind those priorities and then align and you know the events that we get involved in the voices that we try and drive forward to really push those things forward so i think part of the challenges is it's a very big area and so we have to kind of think about what's what's going to enable what what can we do that's achievable but that will also enable the next step? So, like, one of the things we're thinking about focusing on is the lack of data um, around agriculture. There's not a lot of data in the agricultural space um, at the government survey level. And so in terms of knowing what to invest in, it's very hard because there's no data to show what's working or what's not. So if we can get some countries to do some more agricultural data, you know, then you can start to then use that to drive investments. And so same amount of money being spent in more strategic ways is better than trying to get more money. We already, you know, we, we, you, you always need more money, but at the same time you've also got to think about, well, how do you make it more effective and efficient? Of course. So you think um, kind of the production side is is perhaps the next sort of it's one area. part it's of one it. part of it no thing. it's one part of it i mean i don't I, production is a part of it um and it's and it's really targeting certain areas 
of production. I also think it's about, you know, the biodiversity. I think it's about, you know, funding the, the, the challenges for the conflicts that we have going on and the climate issues. I think it's then a shift in diet as well. Um, so there's a range of things that have got to happen concurrently. So there's, there's some reports that are coming out as well. Early in the new year, there's the Eat Lancet Commission on Sustainable Diet Within Planetary Boundaries, which will be a big sort of looking at for the first time climate science and food diet and saying what's the relationship. And so things like that, I think, are going to be really helpful in helping to really focus where are we looking and what are we asking people to do. Are there particular groups that you're sort of looking to engage with now or you know, areas or... Um as a hub, are there sort of people you particularly want to get involved? Yeah, look, I mean, uh, there there is, but it really needs to be driven by these priorities which we're setting at the moment. And so, I mean, we do have groups. Obviously, we've invested quite a bit in engaging with chefs, um, and I think chefs are great because they do have the media spotlight. Like we have chefs in the network that have over a million followers. They reach, they speak, and reach very influential people. Um, and also lots of people. And I think private sector, you know, we're continuing to engage private sector. I mean, they, there's companies out there that feed hundreds and hundreds of millions of people a day. And so obviously there's no solution without engaging private sector. And so we've got to think about how you engage them in a positive way to drive results for them. They're obviously businesses, so they need to think about that and how do you create businesses that are sustainable and that do help meet the SDGs. Fantastic. I think we'll we'll start to wrap it up a little bit because we're um I think we've set that out really well. Um what I tend to do at the end of the podcast is just to ask a few more sort of slightly yeah. slightly general questions, just a little bit a bit kind of quick fire and I um so that that's what I'd like to do if that's all right. Um if I say to you, in, in thinking of food, generally, however you want to kind of take that, if I say success, who do you think of and why? I think of uh, chefs. There's, there's a number of chefs that I think of that are really promoting at the moment sustainable grains in new ways. They're using their restaurants to really think differently about how do they seed more nutritious, more sustainable options. Mm-hmm. Very good. And the um, if I if you could pick up the phone to your twenty year old self, what might you say to him? Mm, that's a very interesting question. Um, what would I say? <laughs> <laughs> Quick fire. I know. Um, what would I say to my 20-year-old self? Um, probably slow down somewhat. Mm. Did you want to get it all done? Yeah, I was just running very fast. I'd probably say slow down a little bit. Take it in. Well, just be a bit more surgical. I think you probably burn a lot of energy when you're young um, and that, is good, but it also doesn't necessarily, it's not necessarily efficient or effective. You force things into reality, but it doesn't necessarily mean they should be reality. Brilliant. All right. Well, let's, let's, uh, we'll call that a day. 
thank you very much no for your time. Do you want a copy of that too? I would. I'd love that. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. All right. Thank, thank you very you much. Guys. No problems.